0: Hey Kids Comics!
1: Today's episode of Hey Kids Comics is dedicated to the memory of Dwayne McDuffie. and welcome to the final week of Vertigo Month here at Hey Kids Comics. So far, your two hosts, Andrew Leyland, that would be me, and Michael Leyland. Hello. Hung out with death. We've got that down pat now, haven't we? Yep. It's almost, almost professional. Almost? Only almost. Speak for yourself. Uh, I always speak for myself. No one else would let me speak for them. Um, We've hung out with death, roamed the deep south, and visited the far future. But this week, we're a lot more down to earth. John Constantine is, for me, the quintessential Vertigo character. Some may argue that Swamp Thing is perhaps the most Vertigo of the Vertigo characters, but Constantine's book Hellblazer is the longest-running book under the Vertigo banner. Do you think Constantine's the most Vertigo of Vertigo, or do you go with the yeah. Swamp Thing? No, I'm down with Constantine. I'm down with I've never read
2: Swamp
1: Thing. Uh, I've read bits of Swamp Thing. I've never read Alan Moore's acclaimed run. Because, right. like, you know, everything Alan Moore touches is gold. Yeah. Well, almost everything. John Constantine was created by Alan Moore. Do you see the way I segued that in? It's very good, yeah. You know what I was talking about? Almost professional. Yeah, almost. Quality. And first appeared in Saga of the Swamp Thing, issue 37. He was initially designed to look like the singer Sting, and is, in Moore's words, a blue-collar warlock, streetwise and working class. Note I didn't even attempt to do Alan Moore's accent. Get enough slagging off about my accents as it is. Oh, they should try. I should, yeah. I I don't think I can do Alan Moore. Is he from Newcastle? I don't know, I've never heard him talk. Have you not? (laughs) Look him up on YouTube. Okay. I heard him talk in that uh, Jonathan Ross documentary about Steve Ditko. I think that's the first place I've ever heard him talk. He's got quite an interesting voice. Interesting? Interesting. Do people have interesting voices? Yes. Okay. He does. Right. Okay. Um, Constantine is from Liverpool and has a fairly strong Scouse accent. Right, now, my first thing about that, has he always been from Liverpool or is that a retcon? I don't know. Because in one of the issues we're about to discuss, he, he's written like a cockney. Well, I only found out he was from Liverpool in the Hellblazer special. All right. I always remember knowing he's from Liverpool, from yeah. but I don't know if I remember knowing he's from Liverpool or if I just found out he was from Liverpool and then retroactively remembered that he was always from Liverpool Okay. you know what I mean sort of. has that just confused you no
0: I'm down, I'm down. <laughs> yes.
1: never mind Constantine is unusual for a comic book character in that at least until 1993 he was ageing in real time however it's just recently been mentioned that he just turned 56 but his ageing process may be different due to him having demon blood in his veins so he's going to be like Nick Fury isn't he He'll always live forever. Yeah, why does Nick Fury not age? There's a reason for it, isn't there? I don't know. He's got—he's not got Steve Rogers' super serum in his veins, but he's got something that keeps him forever young. Right. Okay. So that's why he can have been in World War II, and he's around now, despite the fact he didn't go into suspended animation like Buck Rogers or Steve Rogers. Do you think it's something about the name Rogers? Probably. If you've got a surname Rogers, you're going to get put into suspended animation and be frozen for a couple of hundred years. Yeah. I think that'd be quite cool. I'll change my name to Rogers. Would it work that way, though? I don't know. Because you think Rogers has to be your original name. You can't just change yeah. your name to Rogers and see what happens. Probably. Maybe I should just call myself Buck. 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 Okay. Buck Rogers. <laughs> I'm going to wear a cowboy hat as well. Uh, Buck Rogers, I'm going to wear a cowboy hat. No, but you're called Buck and you have to have a cowboy hat. If you, call you think Buck. if you're called Buck, you, you should be a cowboy? And you should own a truck. I could live with that. My heroes have always been cowboys. It. And they still are today. Note that I didn't sing that because I've received slagging off for my singing as well. That's think I'm gonna do it anyway. Oh no.
0: My God. heroes
1: oh, have always been cowboys. <laughs> Constantine got his own book in 1988, and it's still being published today. My favourite run on the book is by Garth Ennis and various artists, and was very much a prelude to the work on Preacher, although the book is substantially different in tone. Hellblazer is an unabashed horror comic, albeit often dealing with elements of the supernatural, and more psychological in the way it approaches its horror. I got into Hellblazer around the early 1990s, having heard good things about the book. I picked up a few issues and liked it, but it wasn't until Ennis started writing that I really started to take notice. Ennis took the reins from Jamie Delano and really made the characters his own. What are your memories of Hellblazer, Michael? Reading The Sandman,
2: which was issue three, and it had a guest appearance from, from it. And then yeah, actually... John did... Constantine in
1: Sandman? Yeah. I don't remember Constantine being his Sandman.
2: And, um after asking you do you have any Hellblazer you said Yeah, got me a big box of Garth and stuff down there so read
1: this I'm the best parent ever yeah so I just got you down a box of Hellblazer comics and said here have this yep how old were you it was only like a few months back oh so it's not that long ago that I exposed you to Hellblazer no good so say so there you go so you, some parenting skills exist somewhere <laughs> portion of Vertigo Month is issues 57 and 58. Ennis was very much finding his footing with the character at this point, and this was the first art by Steve Dillon, who would go on to work on Preacher with Ennis, and pretty much the entire Hellblazer crew would follow him. Cover artist Glenn Fabre, editor Stuart Moore. Issue 57 has a fugly cover, although that is intentional. It depicts a ravaged corpse tied to a chair with a bullseye behind his head and bullet holes in his chest. The story is called Mortal Clay, and it's by Ennis and Dillon, writing and art. Colours by Tom Ziuko, and letters by Gasper. What do you think of the cover, Michael? Well, it's gross, but it's meant to be like that. And the thing with
2: Glenn Fabry is that I think he always draws people too wrinkly or veiny. Sometimes his anatomy's a bit
1: off as yeah. well. and with this one, his neck's a bit too muscly, really. Well, you never know that his neck's not been shot at, yeah. as we will find. So the story begins... The departed souls of a number of bodies are watching as their bodies are taken to a morgue-like establishment. They, however, are not prepared to rest as these bodies are being used to test the firepower of new weapons and their mortal souls can only watch as their bodies are desecrated. Meantime, John and his mate Chaz are walking through London on their way to see Chaz's Uncle Tom. Turns out Uncle Tom has met his maker, courtesy of an impromptu heart attack, and following the arrival of the ambulance, Chaz and John hit a boozer. After a night of heavy drinking, Chaz asks John if his uncle is in a better place. He knows John knows about this stuff, but John lies to him anyway, telling him he is. After the funeral, John and Chaz take a walk and come across some grave robbers stealing Uncle Tom's body. Chaz sees red and kicks seven bells out of the robbers, finally getting one of them to talk. Apparently they get paid 500 quid a go for the bodies at a place called Stokesley's. But before Chaz can finish, more men show up and give John and Chaz a good going over. After a trip to casualty, they mosey over to John's girlfriend, Kit. She finds Stokesley on a map, and John and Charles decide to head up there tomorrow. At Stokesley, the man, Stephen, who told Charles where they were, gets docked two weeks' pay for not being able to keep his gob shut by a Dr. Amos. After the chewing-out, Amos heads to the shooting range, where he apparently gets his rocks off on watching 50 caliber bullets rip corpses apart. John and Chaz find the place, and John exposits that the place was an old government facility until it was bought by outsiders. They find the facility, hitch a lift in, albeit with the hitchies unaware of their presence. The truck they jump into is, however, full of dead bodies. Chaz, bricking it, swiftly jumps out again, and the poor are caught by Dr. Amos's men. Amos says that they can now start testing on living tissue. So is he called Chaz? Yes.
2: I thought it was Cass.
1: No, it's Chaz. C H A S. Yeah,
2: well, I thought the C-H
1: was the C-H, that was present K. No. Oh. Chaz.
0: Fair
1: As in Morph's friend. Right. You don't even remember Morph, do you? Morph, yeah. Morph. Morph, yeah. How do you remember Morph? He's the funny blue Play-Doh dude. He's not blue. <laughs> That's a <smurf>. That's <laughs> the, <laughs> the
2: Smurfs. Is it the funny Play-Doh thing?
1: Oh, is he thinking of Trapdoor? <laughs> No, I'm thinking of the funny little that had a funny blue Play-Doh bloke, and no,
2: I'm about the funny
1: brown Play-Doh. The Play-Doh. funny brown Play-Doh bloke, that yeah. it. he used to live in the little box with Tony Hart. Yeah, and Chaz was his kind of beige friend who kind of talked it going. Bah! That's pretty much all Chaz said. True okay. that. That's what Chaz did. Bah! And he had a little tin foil girlfriend, right. and he had a dog that was one of those brushes that you get dirt out of your nails with. Okay. So you don't remember Morph, do you? I remember Morph you know who Morph is but <laughs> yeah. well, you don't remember all his mates <laughs> oh. he had a big he did have a big blue friend you're right right big hulking blue friend who was bigger than all the others who was a bit slow right yes well I think I said brown and you might have misheard me
2: or I was going to say brown I no Chat Morph say. was brown right yeah that was, that's what I was going to say but you said blue
0: did I? Yes. See, the I thing with me this me is say we've say got this recorded. I
1: so it's Brown. not one of those conversations I have with your mum where your mum <laughs> says, I never said that. And then it's like, I wish I had recorded this conversation so I could point out that you had said that. There's a few of them. There's quite a few of them. <coughs> oh! Somebody's playing target practice with my head. But that I'm, would be the wife. But I meant to say Brown. Uh, did you like this issue, young Michael?
2: Um, it's all right. Um, I liked how Ennis captured the life and the spirits of the people in about one panel each. It is pretty good, that, isn't it? Yep. Um page four, panel two, is really, really, really gross. Mm, but he's blowing the body to bits. Yeah. Yes. And um the thing that nar thing that annoyed me <laughs> as well with um, Steve Dillon drawing Hellblaze is that he's sometimes I think he draws John Constantine a bit too old for how old he's meant to be. He's
1: had a rough life.
0: Yeah.
2: As John Constantine. Mm. It has to be said. Um the colouring is a bit off on page six panels. Panel two because John's neck and Chas's hand are both white. Yeah, there's a bit of colouring mishap though. Um I like how John messes up and slips and
1: recovers on page ten, panels two
2: and three. Does he? Yeah
1: he slips. Oh yeah, when he's falling down the hill, yeah, he's not infallible. And he decides the only way to stop his fall is to punch somebody. <laughs> yeah.
2: Quality. Page twelve, panel four is a question we all ask ourselves every day. Why didn't
1: I stay in bed this morning? Yep. Can I do a Scouse accent? Can you? No. Why didn't I stay in bed this morning? No, that's crap, isn't it? Right, there. Why didn't I stay in bed this morning? No. In your head you sound like John Lennon. In real life you just sound like a mouse.
2: The gun used in page 18 is, as far as I know, an M240.
1: We should have asked your brother. Is the gun nuts? I did ask my brother. Oh, and and did he know that? (laughs) Yeah. Off the top of his head, or did he do some research? No, it looked like the gun that Juggernauts have in Modern Warfare 2, so I asked him what that was. Um, I, yes, page two and three, Garth Ennis. Um, it just show his great strengths as a writer. He managed to capture normal people's normal lives beautifully, encompassing an entire backstory for these characters in only a few words. Like you said, there's one panel for each of these three characters, who are the characters that we see get shot to bits in the next couple of pages, and it's really well done. Um, a lot of people think Ennis lacks subtlety as a writer, Um, I think they're just people who haven't read his work properly. He is capable of great subtlety. He's also capable of great obviousness. And any chance there is to go for an obvious gag, he takes it. But uh, quickly, Chaz, to the (laughs) piss-up-mobile, being a particularly funny gag. (laughs) Um, There's a really good bit on page five where Chaz is talking about the fact that he has to make some money. Um, and it's pointed out that um, Constantine just hypnotises bank managers and gets them to give him money. I need him to teach me that trick. I really do, because as we know, most bank people are the spawn of the devil. Not all of them, just some of them.
2: Don't you're bankers.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, I do like that on pages where severe stuff happens, that the page borders are black. Um, it gives the book a different look to all the others around at the time. Um, It's been mimicked to death now. Pretty much every comic on the stand now has black pages. Some of them are used quite cleverly. Yes, some of them are used quite cleverly, but I think Hellblazer was one of the first books to do it. And it it did stand out quite well. Page eight, panel three. uh, John's face when he tells Chaz that his Uncle Tom's in a better place. He looks very demonic in that panel. Mm. His hair deliberately looks like he's got horns... And his eyes are all sunken and hollow. Is he lying to him, though? Um. Or does he really think he's gone to a better place? Because he obviously knows about heaven and hell. Yeah. So I like to think that he's not actually lying to him. But with um, that panel he probably is. Yes. See, the panel, see, it's ambiguous, which is what we like. On the one hand, is he lying to his friend to make him feel better? Or does he genuinely think he's gone to a better place? Hellblazer was at its best when it was being ambiguous. Um, after the funeral, when they see the grave robbers robbing the bodies, the fact that John Constantine's a terrible fighter is very amusing, especially in comics, where everyone is you know, remarkably adept at throwing a punch. Mm. Um, when they find out that uh, where they're going is in Yorkshire, John refers to it as Sheepshagger country. Is this going up as clean? No, because <laughs> I've given up with that. Because um, I'm pretty convinced that that's not politically correct anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To refer to Yorkshire as sheep shaggers. Um, he mentions a previous adventure that he had with Chaz where a bloke in clap and had a scalp collection. I have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't really. I'd, yeah, i gathered that you didn't really. Um, on the whole, I thought this was a great issue. Um, My only complaint, really, is Dr. Amos is set up as an irredeemable scumbag from the off. He has no redeeming qualities. He's not in any way likeable. So you're actually itching for John to do something nasty to him from the beginning. Um, He's desecrating corpses, which is just wrong on so many levels. Uh, And the dialogue, the dialogue's brilliant, isn't it? The dialogue's really natural and realistic sounding, except when I say it. I like that bit on page 19 tell you the trouble with this place Chaz you're breathing too much bleeding fresh air <laughs> that's quite funny but a lot of the dialogue in it is is very amusing the art is fantastic um, one of the, the draws about Hellblazer was that it was an American comic book set in England so instead of the usual American skyscrapers that we normally see in US comics. Dylan has the action take place in seedy Flatch and Yorkshire fields. It, it could be an episode of the Sweeney or Life on Mars. It all takes place in seedy places and not at all what you used to see in an American book. Um, it could be a Ken Lynch movie or an Alan Bennett play, but with added swearing and less custard creams. Custard creams? Yes, he did. Didn't he do a play a no, it was a cream cracker under the settee, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. The Alan Bennett play. Yeah. yeah, Which was just Thorahood talking at the camera for about four hours. Oh, God, yeah, we did that in
2: English. Did
1: you? Yeah. And did you enjoy it? No, it was dull. Oh, right, okay. He's one of our most celebrated playwrights. Is he? Yes, he is.
2: Right. Uh, well, with that kind of playwrights, I'm writing a petition for studying Neil Gaiman in schools. I think you should. My friend is. Is he? In... Uh, One of my friends who goes to another school, they're doing uh, Coraline.
0: Are they? Yeah.
2: That's pretty cool. Why
1: Coraline? Why not American Gods? I would have thought that would be a good one for
2: a school. Well, I think
1: he's in year eight or something. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Coraline probably works for year eight (laughs) now. the cover is again by Glenn Fabra and has John Constantine disappearing to a sea of dead bodies do you think his right hand his right hand looks a bit and out of place well have you tried getting your hands in the position of this once again the covers will be on the website for those of you who want to look at it yeah, you kind like of it. can that one should be right a bit more <laughs> you kind of can get your hands in that position if you break a few bones yeah But it's not easy. Uh, Exactly the same people wrote, drew, lettered, coloured and edited this issue as before. But the title is Body and Soul. Dr. Amos wanders in his dreams amidst a populace of desecrated corpses. Turns out he's simply daydreaming. And in actuality, is looking over Chaz's ID. John doesn't have any. Which, you know, kind of works, doesn't it? It makes sense. He says that his real name is Frank William Chandler. And he just, why is he known as Chaz? Um, Where he explains it's named after the bloke who managed Jimi Hendrix. He doesn't know who Jimi Hendrix is, which shows. And he can't even say it right. And he can't know, he says Jimi Hendrix. He, instead of Hendrix because mm. he's a bit of a doofus um, he informs both of them that they are about to be used in trials of various weapons and bullet types to see their effect on a living body under fully controlled laboratory conditions which I thought was a chilling line so because yes but it also makes it that he's going to keep them alive for as long as possible Right. so he's just going to shoot bits off them okay. but keep them alive Because obviously his his experiment is, well, how is this going to affect living bodies? So the quicker he kills them, then his experiment's kind of useless then, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, as we've already pointed out, he is an irredeemable scumbag. So it wasn't really a surprise. Chaz and John are shown to the cell, where Chaz believes John has a plan. Unfortunately, he doesn't know John very well because he hasn't got a clue what he's doing. Meantime, the souls of the desecrated are orbiting the limboverse, unable to enter even heaven or hell. The heavenly winds will rip them apart before much longer and they will remain in a limbo state. One soul was just on the verge of heaven when his soul was ripped away. He falls back to Earth and sees the lab- laboratory where they are shooting more bodies. The soul feels himself shredding away but senses magic. Constantine. He appears before John, telling him what has happened to the souls of the dead before exploding into pure light. John tells Chaz that the desecration of their bodies has buggered up their souls and they are stuck, unable to get into the afterlife. He tells Chaz that he may be able to save them and asks for the pocket knife that Chaz keeps in his boot. John cuts his hand and pours the blood into a circle on the wall, telling Chaz he's opening a soul store. The souls released are enraged and seek revenge. They seek out Dr. Amos. John tells Chaz the souls will now go wherever they're meant to and Chaz, happy with that, takes off through the busted cell wall. He finds all the workers in states of shock, takes an M16 automatic rifle and finds Amos, who has gouged out his own eyes. Chaz decides not to shoot him, instead choosing to beat him to death with the butt of the gun. Chaz meets up with John at the gates and neither asks the other about what just happened what did you think of the conclusion it was an alright conclusion it was Um, Dr. Amos has never heard any Jimi Hendrix so we're going to play some What do you think of Jimi Hendrix? Oh, I want to watch this. better. Than Purple Haze? No, I don't agree with that. No, you don't. I was going to no. say you don't agree with that at all. You're <laughs> no, just I deliberately don't. trying to be contrary, aren't you? No, I messed up a bit. Did you? Yeah. Oh, well, we'll leave it in. I like it when you mess up. We cut out all of my mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. Just... Yes. I uh, really I... need to listen to the episode you edited.
2: <laughs> and... yeah. No, don't. Okay. Um, Amos has some really dodgy dreams. He does,
1: doesn't he? Irredeemable <laughs> scumbag. Mm.
2: Um. I liked pa- uh, page six, panel two, where he just says maybe he likes Floyd better. Oh, you can't just do that. You've got to give him the whole context. Right,
1: okay. In jail... Um, How can so anyone go through life without hearing purple haze? Maybe he likes Floyd better. <laughs>
2: That wasn't Scouse! <laughs> that was Irish! That was Irish. <laughs> <laughs> well, with this group being held as that, who's to say he wasn't Irish? Every character in this, at this point
1: was Irish. So, Grant Morrison writes him as a Cockney, despite <laughs> being Scottish, but you think Garth Ennis writes him as an Irishman? I can't because he's scouts. Irish. Maybe he likes Floyd better. He's like an eye,
0: apparently.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we really are quite terrible. Should we delete that part out? No, we should leave that in.
2: Oh, please don't. <coughs> um, page 6, panel 5, also shows how useless John is. He's <laughs> yeah, he not got a clue. Chaz asks him how they're going to get out, where John just says, out. How the bloody hell do I know?
0: Mm. Genius.
2: Mm-hmm. And Page 7 also re- reminded me of the bit in South Park movie where Kenny goes up to heaven and then gets <laughs> pulled back, yeah, down. Pulls back down to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, And I really liked the splash page on pages 14 and 15, the double page spread. The
1: double page spread
2: of the Soul Storm. Yeah. Yeah, that's exceptional, that. Which also, after reading the next two issues going to do, has
1: really good colouring. It has brilliant colouring. And when you look at the actual picture, though, it's nothing really but the facility and some mountains. But it's gorgeous. It's wonderfully done. Steve uh, Steve Dillon is uh, extremely underrated as a comic book artist he should have won every award under the sun well the ones
2: he did well page 21 shows how John doesn't take much seriously
0: no
1: he doesn't really well not much anyway butchering them butchering them like they were animals he just loves seeing it loves seeing bodies shot to pieces ah well it might have been worse he might have been shagging them (laughs) that'd be disgusting I didn't even try a Scouse accent. This really isn't going to be I put the last one up as explicit as well. Right, okay. I don't really see how you can talk about Vertigo. We tried to keep the Preacher one clean. Yeah.
0: With um, Root
1: Jr. I was the last one explicit. All oh. I said was ass. Well, they don't actually have another rating. Is he the clean or explicit? That was clean. And, that, and it's like, well Everyone so, has an ass. Uh, well, yes. Most people talk out of it. Uh, yes, the double page spread on page 14 and 15 of All the Souls Screaming Out in Pain is really quite effective. Um, Steve Dillon's brilliant. Uh, this is a good wrap-up to an excellent two-part story. It's lacking in the subtle character moments of part one, and the ending's a bit like Razor the Lost out, but it works... There's a small amount of metaphysics here as well. as some theology, the concept of there being a heaven and a hell will play into Preacher as well. Um, And it's something that's not normally addressed. All these TV shows about demons, Supernatural and Buffy and Charmed and all the others, go out of their way, not to mention God. But the very existence of demons means there has to be a God, yin and yang. God will play a part in later issues of Hellblazer, but not taking the substantial role he takes in Preacher. It'd be interesting to know what Ennis' religious affiliation is. I mean, being Irish, I assume that he's Catholic, and that has played a part in a number of his stories, but it doesn't mean that he is. Do the Irish not have their own religion called Guinness? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any more to comment upon issue 58 of Hellblazer? it's me done. Excellent What was that? Hellblazer? Hellblazer! I was becoming an actor, a thespian, (laughs) darling. We need to enunciate your words so that the back of the theatre can hear you. For if you haven't done theatre, darling, you're not truly an actor.
2: So do you need to move your arms as well? Yes, your arms need to
1: move with gesture so that people can see your every move. Except so that you for the people listening to us. Yes, because this is not a visual medium, darling, but I am projecting <laughs> my voice, darling. Did that not sound like Watson name from The Incredibles? <laughs> the girl who does the seamstress. What was her name? Mode, Edna Mode. Yeah. It sounded like I right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I love The Incredibles best film ever that wow. uh, has Holly Hunter in it Okay. except Raising Arizona which was quite good what? no that was somebody who reminded you of Holly Hunter Francis McDiarmid but it isn't actually Holly Hunter she was in all ways with Richard Dreifuss and John Goodman which is a much underrated Steven Spielberg
3: Spend your days just working or shopping Depending on how much your luck is in Spend your night life table hopping And trying to keep that bag of bones in the street I don't mind not feeling immortal 'Cause it ain't all that, as far as I can tell. I don't mind not going to heaven as long as.
1: managed to shoehorn a Grant Morrison reference into the episode legitimately. I know. It's, it's quite incredible. Oh, tell our lovely listeners what you've picked. I went for uh, issues 25 and 26. And why did you go for these issues, Michael? Well, because you were
2: doing two issues and these were ones off, and I didn't want to do a um, Garth Ennis...
1: Because you were doing Garth Ennis. I was doing Garth Ennis. So I went for Grant Morrison. (laughs) Should I stop that now? Yeah. I need the Star Trek Red Alert sound effect, don't I? It
2: was either these two or the Neil Gaiman one. And I went for these two just because I personally think... Well, not because I personally think they're better. I think they're both alright. But because you did two. Only alright. Well, Well, yeah, they're not the best Hellblazer issues. I thought it was... Anyway, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Yes, indeed. So, um, the first one... Is called Early Warning. Indeed, and it's by Grant Morrison. Don't oh! you know? That's, that's
0: it.
1: <laughs> Preemptive strike. Dave- Very cunning, <laughs> my young apprentice. Very have, cunning. Have, Can I edit
0: this
2: one too, just to cut all of that out? <laughs> no, but that's staying in. Go on. Um, it's by Dave Lloyd, who did the art and the colour, and also worked on V for Vendetta. Yes. Have we met, David Lloyd? Yes. have we Yep. Right. He was on his own next to the cafe. Was he? Yeah. Did we get anything autographed by David Light? You got V for Vendetta signed off him. I did get me V for Vendetta signed off him. You're absolutely right, yes. Carry on. Um, and it is by Tom Vrain, who did the letters. And I think your letterers should get credited because they actually make the comic.
1: They they should get more credit. It's mm-hmm. very true. The cover
2: for this is quite strange and twisted. It's an excellent cover. It's, yeah. It made mum laugh, even. <laughs> as as your mum's <laughs> twisted. Yeah. That's why I love her. It's got a group of people dressed in costumes and wearing creepy masks. Some are holding kni- uh, knives, and one is even holding holding a head. What? It, oh, cool,
0: yeah!
1: <laughs> yes, I have not noticed that. Um, I
2: had to point
0: that out to Michael as well.
1: Alright, oh, so you're the smart one. Which sure, is not, just accepted, isn't yeah. it? Um, all of
2: them are holding a lantern each with them having a different image in one has a mushroom cloud, another a demonic face, a skeleton and even two figures having sex.
1: Where's the sex? The
2: are you sure it's sex? Are you sure one of us is not just killing another one? Because that to me like looks sex. like wings. Was it not? Uh, hey, Garth Ennis is going to do an angel and a demon having sex
1: later on. No, I don't think they thought that far ahead. Uh, I think it's a brilliant cover, but masks people wearing big masks is always scary. What's that? Is that the Wicker Man with the scenes with the people wearing masks? And it's just close ups of people wearing masks, and it just freaks you out. Um, having the primary figure holding a knife just ups the creep factor, especially since he's got a bib on that says, I'm just a big baby. Do you know what that reminds me of? What? Do you know what I thought of as soon as I saw that cover? The League of Gentlemen. League of Gentlemen. you never seen The League of Gentlemen? You're my wife now, Dave! No. You know what's The League of Gentlemen? By the people who did Psychoville. No. You'd love The League of Gentlemen. Okay. It's strange and twisted and warped right. and very, very, very funny. <laughs> okay. You'd love it. Right. Really do think we need to get you out on
2: DVD. Um, this issue starts with an image of the Flying Dales defence system, an image used throughout the series um, with different objects.
1: Very, very subtle. Very.
0: little
2: visual reference, though. Yeah. And I was very impressed that you spotted that. Thanks. Hmm. How stupid do you think I am? I don't think you're stupid at all. A truck drives down the motorway. The driver talks about what you can do in the four minutes that the defences will warn you in. Yeah,
1: what can you do in the four minute warning? <laughs> <laughs> Constantine? says, boil an Arnie egg. Says, an egg. Yeah.
2: <laughs> John, sitting next to him, lights a cigarette. The truck stops at... How do you, how do you say that? Thursday. Thursday.
1: If we'd done any research, which we didn't,
0: because no. we don't, because such is a level research of
3: research into, that, that, that
1: goes into this show, uh, we would have checked whether Thursday was a real place and whether... Yeah. But I don't think it is. I did put some research into the Flying Dales Defence System. Did you? Are they real? Yeah. Are they? Yep. Yeah. Very impressed. So maybe Thurs Dyke's real. Excellent. We need to get our research assistant onto that. We Filthy don't. assistant! Be look up. that up for us, please. Thurs, as in Thursday. Dyke, as in derogatory term for a female lesbian. doesn't say a word, it just says Thurs Dyke. Near the Flying Dales Defence Early Warning System. Indeed. Ooh. yes yeah it was actually it was yeah. smack dab in the middle of the Jamie Delano era it was because it was
2: right in the very middle of <laughs>
0: You
1: carry on. Of
2: the theme machine wasn't it? the truck stops at Thirst Dike with a big festival the driver tells John to take her and that there's a storm coming what well, like in the
1: Terminator yeah he, he says take her, there's a storm coming she looks off into the <laughs> distance and says I know <laughs> boom 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 no he just
2: says yeah oh yeah There he meets Una, a young photographer. He sneaks up on her near an abandoned mine. Una says that she invited John up here because she thought he would enjoy an old pagan carnival. He says that the town has the atmosphere of a funeral. She also tells John that she thought he might not come because of how close Thursday is to Ravenscar. What happened at Ravenscar? He went to a mental asylum, though. Oh, yeah, he did. He got through through into a loony bin, didn't he? Yeah, and she heard voices. One flew over Constantine's nest. John asks Una, is she hearing voices? And she says only when she stops taking the tablets. <laughs> Having realised he's out of cigarettes, John asks Una, could he borrow a pound
1: for another a pack? A quid? Of and for a pack of fags? Yep. Yeah. How old is this book? Well, it's 1989, isn't it? 1989. Yeah. Because there's an advert for the Batman movie on the back page. That kind of gives yeah. it away. My filthy assistant has just come through with the knowledge. Ravenscar is in Scarborough. What about Thors Dyke? Maybe that's near. Maybe it's near, yeah. Mm. Maybe it's a tiny little town that's well yeah.
2: And that he'll pay her back. Honest. Whilst John and Una catch up, a man walks ahead of them carrying a mask of a smiling sinister man in a crown. In a shop, John asks for twenty silk cups. He always smokes silk cups, doesn't he? He does. And wasn't it Jesse Custer who smoked camel camel cigarettes?
0: Not real camels. <laughs> <laughs> Look
1: how he fit one of them in his mouth. <laughs> Maybe you're like cut off. <laughs> Two figures
2: wearing masks loom over him. John turns around and almost wets his pants and the men laugh and calm down. It's that kind of festival Luna says. Meanwhile, John Goss, an old man, walks back home from his sheep. He can feel <laughs> <this stuff. laughs> What was that? There's a sheep. (laughs) Right, okay.
1: There's a sheep just walked
2: through. So totally walked. It wasn't me. He can feel the soil beneath his feet carry a note that travels through the trees and are carried by the crows. They say if all the crows leave the forest it's a sign of bad luck, but that's just superstition. Una tells John that Thirstike has a carnival to show the world that it's not dead after the closing of its pits. A man starts a fight with someone from out of town. He says that's his American nuclear t- testing base right on the doorstep, but the local says that's the only thing they're bothered about is jobs. Someone else puts a mask to a woman on the local and tells him to relax. Meanwhile, underground, Professor Horobin and Dr. Poole drive down a tunnel talking about Professor's work. He's trying to bring the kink that everyone has inside them, but hardly as a nose about. How to do this work is more supernatural than scientific, He's also been unleashing, and manipulating invisible waves on Thursday, in that they will make them angels, or devils. Una takes John to the church to see Bayliss, the vicar who's an anti-nuclear activist. Behind John is a coach with an old woman in it, but when he turns around, it's gone. Inside the church, John notices a maw, the doorway to hell. Godfrey Bayliss tells John about the town, how he doesn't approve of a pagan celebration, but as long as it brings the town together, he doesn't mind. He's against a nuclear base, though. It's what annoys him is the vibrations in the ground that sometimes ring the church bell. Irina takes a picture of an angel statue, but notices its shadows, a demonic shape. She looks up to the church spire and sees crows circling it. Godfrey Bayliss states that God has deserted them.
1: Which is very similar to Preacher. Maybe he was that far ahead. Well, that he preempted what Garth Ennis was going to do with Preacher five years hence. Yeah. Mm, possible. There's a mention into Nazi
2: zombies in JLA. Eh? Is there? Yeah. Nazi zombies?
0: hmm Okay.
2: Night. Drums roll, people laugh, crowds of people all wearing costumes. The vibrations increase and John's alarm clock stops. The crowd fit, uh, passes John's room. Bad dream music plays. The window shivers and the room hums. Outside the church, a group is surrounded. Inside, Godfrey says Christ has come down from the haunted cross. He demands a sign, and at that moment the window smashes and shards hit Godfrey. He claims that he's free. He's filled with delight and he leaves, leads the crowd. Somewhere a child screams, then abruptly stops. John grabs a coat and leaves his room. A girl's dad and brother come into her room while she's asleep and teach her the facts of life. A man, dreaming of a world filled with miniskirts and makeup, screams as he begs for castration. Music plays, music of transfiguration, music of the devil. Back underground, Professor horribin says he had to test the equipment. He drowned the town with microwaves that make people unleash an unconsciousness of desires and fees. A man dressed as a baby stands over a dead, naked female body, saying she loved the child more than him. He turns to the baby that's playing in the cot, and he says there's only room for one baby. A man dressed as a goat sits holding a fork and tells his dogs not to move. It sits in a pool of blood in the corner, dead. Its eyes sit on the table. John leaves the hotel and, with a grin, puts on a mask of Margaret Thatcher. Not a witch,
1: which I put <laughs> No, <laughs> no, you, well, you're not old enough to, to know of the pure horror, that, the real horror, that was Margaret Thatcher. Can I say, I had a lot of fun writing that. Did you?
0: Did you
2: enjoy that one? <laughs> just writing the synopsis, because yeah. it's like the way it's written in this, and I just did a
1: of everything happens. very good, yes. Yeah. It's, it's a very good issue. It's a very strong issue. Uh, it's up, though, with Kill Your Boyfriend as one of the best things Morrison's written. It's a really creepy story about the dark thoughts that everyone has in their heads that under the thin veneer of society stay hidden. We've all thought that about our missus, that they, lo- they love the baby more than us. She loves the cats more than us. That's a good point, actually. <laughs> Oh dear. Here the city itself has given up, which is a hugely political idea given the time that it was written, 1989. Um, Morrison takes the NUI that was filling the country at the end of the 80s after 11 years of a conservative government and applying it to an entire town. The town here, having seen all its industry shut down and with nothing left to live for, simply gives up. In addition to the references to Thatcher's Britain and John Donning and Margaret Thatcher mask at the end, Morrison lays on the political subtext quite effectively... Um, I'm getting the feeling that he wasn't a fan of the conservative era, mm. Mr. Morrison. But he is Scottish, isn't he? he yes. Now, then. No, he'd be t- terribly unimpressed okay. now. Uh, as far as I know, the Scottish people didn't weren't terribly fond of Margaret Thatcher, seeing as she decimated Scottish uh, industry. Right.
0: That's where... Yeah,
1: she pretty much did that to every industry. Uh, the art's excellent, but the colouring sucks moose. It does indeed. Oh, God. Both the art and the colours are by David Lloyd. So you'd think if anyone could colour their own work, it'd be the artist who's drawing it. So I don't know what went on here. This would have been much better in black and white. Because the colouring... It's, it's like he had one crayon. <laughs> As a, I mean, the first couple of pages are okay, but then suddenly it's like you'll get a page that's blue, for no readily explained reason. you get a page that's brown and orange. And then you'll get a couple of pages that go back to being blue. And it's like, you know, invest in some more colouring pencils, Wilt. Huh. <sighs> Page 22, where the man on the baby mask so consumed by jealousy of his wife love his child is terrifying without actually showing anything.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that's quite interesting about this entire issue. Morrison keeps an awful lot of it off panel. It's more spooky by what you don't see rather than what you do see. Um, some interesting adverts in this. One for Batman on video cassette, the Tim Burton one. Um, it just reminds me how much that film bugs me. Um, it's really not dated well. There's an ad for Arkham Asylum by Morrison and McKean. Uh, I remember not liking that much. I didn't
2: mind it, but it was um, Morrison that made me want to read it. But after reading it, I really enjoyed
1: David McKean's artwork. More than the story? Yeah. See, I've not read it in 20 years, so maybe I'll give it another go. It's entirely possible that I'll like it more next time around.
2: Yeah, um, like I said, the image of Flying Dale's defense system is repeated throughout the issue as on page 8, panel 1, it's the pool balls. Mm. Page 22, panel 1, it's the balls on the baby's cot. And page 23, panel 6, it's the dog's eyes on the table. Yeah,
1: it's very good, that. Very nice little subtle visual reference. Mm. I liked that.
2: Una went to the mental institution of John Ravenscar, yeah. where he was sent because of a nervous breakdown after his friends were tormented to hell by trying to summon and destroy a demon. Is that...
1: No, it's not. That's not the Newcastle story, is it? Yeah. Isn't that where Newca isn't because Raven scars in Scarborough? No, it's the Newcastle one. Is it because the yep. Newcastle story was referred to throughout the early issues of Hellblazer? Yeah, it's where all of his friends died. Yeah, but it wasn't actually told us what happened until later. Yeah. Wasn't he performing an exorcism, and he messed it up? Yeah. And he, a young girl died, a child. Yeah. That was Newcastle, so that's what drove him mad. Yeah. And that's where he got sent to. Ravenscar. The many panels in this are quite creepy, like the woman on
2: the cart and the angel's reflections. The whole issue itself is quite creepy, and the masks and Morrison's dialogue sums up the townsfolk's wants really well, and can sum them up in one or two panels. The repetitions describe scenes and atmospheres really well and are quite effective. But throughout the next three uh, issues, John does not have his coat, which annoyed me so
1: much. He doesn't dress like John Constantine in this. He's no. dressed all in black, isn't he? Yeah. Which is fine. You don't wear the same clothes every day. No, but it's There's no reason for, reason for him to coat. dress in his trench coat and white shirt all the time. I suppose so. Yeah. The art
2: is okay at times in this issue, but the colours are what drags it down. But panels of this really
1: bugged me, especially when John was green or yellow. Yeah, there are some unusual colouring choices in this one, it really is quite strange to colour entire pages blue,
0: but whatever
2: down on John, who's stuck in a sea of hands. The professor in this is straight out of the previous issue of page 21, panel 6. Yeah, same guy. He can recycle his art if he wants to. I suppose so. The crowds strip Godfrey, give him new robes, paint a face and rename him Archbishop
1: Bomb. Which is a great name. It is a great name, and it's also very close to the actual title of the issue. Which is called How I How I Learned to Love the Bomb. She's a reference to Dr. Strangelove. You haven't seen Doctor Left? No. You can't fight in the war room! Okay. Think about that. Why can you not fight in the war room?
2: Maybe you'll get it <laughs> when you're older. Carry on! They head towards the first like, More tactical missile wing and turn down the gates. A guard panics as his friend gives up and shoots himself. <laughs> A car crashes and the crowd pull out of people in it. And they beat them. Una watches in horror. She runs through the streets, filled with brainwashed people until she spots John. John is leading the crowd through a river calling himself the mother. <laughs> <laughs> Una throws the mask off him and into the river. The crowd jump in following the mask. Una puts headphones on John and he remembers who he is. Plays him some sonic youth. Used to be. Back at the testing site, the last guard panics and shoots Godfrey. The crowds jump on him and Godfrey rises. He says he is all light and cannot die. Back underground, Poole asks Horobin what did he do. Horobin says he's awakened the god that sleeps in everyone. He says Poole won't understand. All the ministry does is cut the funding. Poole realises that Horobin's microwave machine is hollow, and so Horobin attacks him with a hammer. A man cuts faces off children for adults to wear. They come in smiling and leave smiling. People hang themselves. A woman screams that the devil has come. Una and John sit in the local disco. The rhythmic noises block out effect. Una says she's stopped taking tablets and can hear the town committing suicide after years of failure and neglect. She says the town has called upon the angel of death and she can hear its wings. She tells John that Bayliss has gone to the airbase. John realises that he's after the bombs, it's what they need, it gives their life's meaning and that it's like a religious to them and they're after God. Una takes John to the truck at the back. She says she'll stay with the children inside. She also gives him bachelor pad tape to keep the microwave effects out. John realises that the truck has no keys in, so he has to hotwire it. And after Una says she thought he couldn't drive, he says of course he can't. Bayless leaves his followers at the planes. John speeds towards the airfields where Bayless talks to the god of death whilst his followers crawl all over the planes and bombs. When John arrives, the crowds come to, come to as his music interrupts the microwaves. After John yells at one of them, he tells him where Bayless is. John runs down the airstrip, but a plane with Bayliss in takes off. He heads back to the crowd, and Bayliss turns into white light. Meanwhile, a crowd of people cut the disco's power. They drag Una out into the street, where they plan to burn her as an offering. Then, they spot the plane in the sky. It explodes, taking the town with it. Morning. The town is ash and rubble. A new steam stand. Some men dig in the rubble. John walks past, telling the reporter to feed them lies. The reporter tells the team to cut and start again. John thinks about the town. It was never alive, just wearing a mask and now it's being cast away. John hitchhikes down the road where the same truck that brought him here takes him away. He tells the driver to take him to London, all the way down. Here's Sonic Youth and Superstar.
3: The second show, your guitar it's
1: you know that yeah. we don't have a lot of Sonic youth no it's just nice maybe we should have more Sonic youth which is just nice the the little I know of Sonic youth quite like them I don't think I've ever listened to them properly the cover's not as effective as issue 25 uh, it's very evocative of the wicker man the edward woodward christopher lee classic not the abomination that was the nicholas cage version uh, page 10 has professor horriban complaining about his cuts to funded Oh, the more things change. Um, I've said before about Constantine always being a Scouser, because the dialogue in this really does read better if you read Constantine as a Cockney rather than a Scouser, especially the, the way he keeps saying in it. In it. In it, though. I don't know what that was. I no. oh, dare. No, that's that. Yeah. I dear, in it. No, because Scousers Scouser say in it a lot. It's more Cockney, that. At least I think it is. The wrap-up isn't quite as effective as the setup Again. So again you've got a strong opening issue like we had with the last issue we looked at and then um, a conclusion that isn't quite as strong as the effect, as the setup. But taken as a whole, this is a very enjoyable, low-key horror tale proving the makers of the movie really didn't understand what they were doing. They should have been looking at old Hammer horror films and stuff like The Wicker Man when crafting the movie and not looking at Friday the 13th or stuff like that. Um... And just having Shirley Booth in it—I mean, really, Shirley Booth. He was in it. Constant—I think he was Chaz. Oh, really? Yeah. And how awful's that? I don't know if that's one hundred percent right, so I may ask my filthy assistant to look that up. Who did Shirley Booth play in Hellblazer? Love? Or was it called? It was called Constantine. The movie, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Once again, showing what little grasp of the property the actual filmmakers had. Um, the real Constantine, but a pox on that movie. Um, I did like the nihilistic ending though. To the movie? No, I didn't make it to the end <laughs> of the movie. Right. The fact that they cast Keanu Reeves as John Constantine was enough to make me vomit. Right. But then Shia LeBouf as Chaz <laughs> okay. just made me want to rip the lungs out of everyone involved with the film. See, Strat- so he plays Chaz, right. tie them to a chair and make them read a couple of issues of the comics. Read it! <laughs> read what you're adapting, morons! But they don't. Gavin Rochdale was in Constantine. Oh, God. So now they're not even putting actors in it. <laughs> Although Keanu Reeves and Shia LaBeouf means they probably weren't putting actors in it, but you know what I mean. Do you know what Keanu Reeves said when they gave him the script? Dude. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for the paycheck.
2: <laughs> Carry on. Page two, panel four, just in the corner of it, there's a dude hanging himself.
0: No. Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, we should laugh. John wanted people to follow him because he thinks his way is best. And he was wearing a mask with Margaret Thatcher on it. Yes, that's mm. it. I also like how he kept out the effect by listening to Sonic Youth. I thought that was a bit Star Trek
1: and It's just. The, nice. Like, that's the kind of thing Spock would have figured out, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If we use uh, some popular music of the day, Captain, I believe that its effects will nullify the blue purple ray beam thing that is beaming up. From the planet. Excellent. Spock. Can we beam back through the deflector dish of the Enterprise and save the planet? I believe that would be possible, sir. Then let me Lucy in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just... I didn't dislike it. It's, oh, okay. it's alright. It just I just really did smack of something that would have happened in Star Trek. Spock would have figured out that loud music would have sorted out and then Kirk would have saved the day by actually doing Spock's plan in that way that Kirk always did. Spock came up with the idea, Kirk took the credit for it. Right. Spock raised an eyebrow. So I know what Reed Richards did. It's secretly, instead
2: of using just noise, he put Sonic Youth on the thing if you said here's Spider-Man it would
1: have be, been yeah it would have been funny if that's what Spider-Man <laughs> had done with Venom just played Sonic Youth at him <laughs> <laughs> that would have been very funny <laughs> or oh, some Iron Maiden <laughs> oh dear or oh, Ramstein. <laughs> that'd be great Venom defeated by Ramstein. <laughs> I like the colouring
2: on page twenty-one to
1: panel two to page twenty-three and panel seven, where because it is. Because it's black and white, apart from the figures. It, yeah. Proving that it would have been much better if it was in black and white. Yeah. It's almost actually not colouring, isn't it? It's almost yep. just duo-tone shading, apart from the fact that they're all pink. Yeah. But no, that is really good. That the black and white panels to depict the the ruined town. Yes, I like that as well. It's very effective.
2: Um, I like in this how John doesn't save the day. Because failing is what made him, his failures define him. And how I like it that he doesn't chase down Godfrey with another plane or shoot him down with a rocket launcher, I
1: like how he failed. What, well, like he would have done in the film? Yeah. Uh, blow him out of the sky with a rocket launcher. Here, John, take a rocket launcher. Excellent! Yes. Dis- <sighs> see, see, the only problem with that is ultimately it gets to be a bit like the X Files are supernatural, where they never actually save anybody's life. Yeah. So you're kind of like, well, what's the point of it? If you can't actually save anyone, what's the point? I don't mind him losing every now and again. And like I, like I said, I like the ending to this one. Mm. But, you know, Constantine, it does kind of make him seem a bit useless. That he doesn't actually ever succeed. Although he does succeed sometimes, doesn't
2: he? Only I?
0: sometimes. Only
1: sometimes. Right, now, I
2: swear if you do a siren here, I'm going to shoot you. Okay. Okay. He you said before that Grant Morrison is my all-time favourite comic book writer. Most people are put off of him because of his style of writing. My favourite comics are ones with huge epic ideas like Filth, Animal Man by Morrison, but also Neil Gaiman, Superman and Green Lantern, One Shot, Blackest Night, Preacher and
1: Scott Pilgrim, some of which require a little effort on your side. Doesn't Blackest Night only require a bit of effort on your side? Because if you don't buy one of the 408 crossover issues, you don't understand what's going on. That's why I said some. so so by contrast I think that's bad writing if you have to buy 408 crossover issues to understand your series that's just wrong all you need to do is buy Blackest Night (coughs) Green
2: Lantern which is alright anyway because to know Blackest Night you have to be reading Green Lantern anyway is Geoff Johns not the most overrated writer ever Uh, depends on what Um, which comic you read and that's done by him I'm not a fan of Secret Origin, but I like his Green Lantern.
1: See, I didn't mind Secret Origin for the last four issues. But if you want to think what we thought of Secret Origin, listen to episode one, because we covered it all though. But I think any writer that has Superman being feared by the general public just doesn't understand Superman. I don't mind people fearing Spider-Man, because J. Jonah Jameson turns them all against him. You wouldn't be scared of Superman. Superman's our friend. Our friend. Yes. He wears primary colours. Of course (laughs) he's a friend. He's either a friend of Dorothy. Spider-Man was, uh, was primary Colors.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this story does not require anything from you. It's just a straightforward story, but it does also have big ideas. Has a lot of political subtext. It has a lot, yeah.
1: Did you get any of that, being only 15? Yeah, I got some. Did you? Yeah. Because you didn't get that he was wearing a Margaret Thatcher mask, did well, that's you? because I've never actually seen Margaret Thatcher. How lucky you are. <laughs> I suppose on a, on a surface level, a lot of it is still relevant. Right. We're still suffering from shutting down lots yeah, of... yeah factories and industries, and we're still suffering from government making ridiculous cuts to necessary services, so that everyone's left unemployed. So all that's still relevant 20 years later, which is quite scurry really.
0: Yeah.
1: That nothing's changed. We've now got a conservative government that's slashing everything again.
2: Now, all of Morrison's stories, the ones I've read anyway, work on two levels. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can read them, and it'll be fairly straightforward. Perhaps a little confusing. Or you can reread issues, study panels, and it'll be huge, complicated stories that readers will be rewarded for in the end. And this story could be read as a creepy Hellblazer tale, or a deep look into people's conscience—what people really want, what they're too scared to say, too scared to think about—but as always there in the back of their mind. But also, just like in Animal Man, it's based on a protest—anti-nuclear. Although it's unrealistic and it's far out, though, Morrison is saying that the effects of nuclear testing can be quite bad. Chernobyl, for example. It's a metaphor. As like opposed a to a metaphor. Metaphor. It's like a megaphone. It's like, like a big, big metaphor. Out. Yeah. Very good. Nuclear is bad and people are twisted. Okay. Morrison... <laughs> Morrison writes stories where they are set or become settings like Wonderland. If everyone was like him and absolutely bonkers, everyone would be normal. <laughs> you think Grant
1: Morrison's normal? If everyone was bonkers like him. Oh dear, mad like Grant Morrison. Yeah. No, on the whole, I enjoyed that. Um, I I don't dislike Grant Morrison at all. I think some of the stuff that he's done is very, very good. I think some of it's overwritten tosh. Like what? I'm not... I, <laughs> I didn't, couldn't wrap my head around Final Crisis and Superman Beyond, the 3D one. Yeah, that was awful. What happened well, in that issue?
2: Um, what happened? He went to the planet of the Watchers, who no, the monitors who've been around since Crisis on abs- Christ, no, Crisis, Crisis on, on Infinite, Infinite, Infinite Earths, Earth. who we were in there, but now there's fifty-two of them ever since the events of Fifty Two. Each monitor. So there's a monitor for them. each world. Yes, um, and. One of them turned into a vampire thing, and Ultraman got turned into a vampire, and Superman beat the crap out of them, harnessing the 3D powers, which didn't make much sense since we read it in 2D.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Proving once again that 3D's crap. Yeah. Yes, excellent. Well, that was Vertigo Month. I hope you all enjoyed it. I know I did. Especially Mm. last week's that I don't remember anything about. No, I don't even remember recording that one. Right, you're not having uh, alcohol again then. <laughs> I think I've been banned from alcohol. And the, the cold medicine didn't help. No. Obviously. Um, Lemsips. Lems. 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 Yes, Lemsips. Very the nice. Cold medicine. Particularly the blackcurrant ones. Don't like the lemon ones, the blackcurrant ones. Next week, back in more comfortable territory, Spider-Man hits the big time. Say goodnight, Michael. Good night. Hey Kids Comics is a the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. All music used in the show is copyright by their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this. They do it simply for fun. And because they have too much spare time. Ah. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in this show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and nobody else. We can be emailed on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and our website is www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com You can friend us on Facebook by going to Hey Kids All One Name Comics All One Name. And now it's time to pick up our bottomless brown bag, don an ill-advised polyester shirt and beige bell-bottoms, and hitchhike down the loneliest road we can find, all the while trying to find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within. You be good to yourself, my friends.